Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. This episode's guest is at the cutting edge of a new form of journalism and she's a woman on a mission. Anya Kerr, Chief Operations Officer and co-founder of Kinzen. And I think as an industry, we haven't done a very good job at explaining the why, why journalism matters. Why Journalism Matters is what Anya Kerr is all about. She was a founding member of Storyful, the phenomenally successful startup with Mark Little, and she later went on to work with Facebook. She's now back in the startup arena with Kinzen, which she talks about later in the podcast. Anya believes that understanding the needs of millennials is the key for the future of journalism. The millennial generation, the 18 to 25 year olds, are the ones that potentially can help save journalism. Why? Because they've become sensitised to paying for Netflix and paying for Spotify. They're paying for experiences that give them lots of sources, experiences in one place, that organises their time, that's efficient with their time, and is ultimately quality, it's about service. Intentional listening is one of the many new phrases Anya explains in the podcast, based on Kinzen's research. So how do we ensure that we're doing that people-centred uh, listening journalism that is about almost intentional listening, organised listening? And you're starting to see a lot of new technology companies like Tortoise in London doing exactly that. Later in the podcast, Anya shares fantastic leadership insights. But I began by asking her, what exactly is Kinzen? Kinzen is a technology company that is building products for people and publishers to ultimately give back control of their news experiences. Uh, we know that people are hungry for a sense of normalcy in the chaos, uh, to have a routine around their news in the mornings, uh, for it to be quality, for it to be trustworthy. There's a real quest and a thirst for that. Publishers are also hungry to basically rebuild some of those old relationships that they lost to the technology platforms to build deeper engagement, deeper loyalty, and ultimately convert people into memberships and subscriptions in order to ultimately survive and thrive in this very difficult moment for journalism. But there's a huge resistance to people subscribing when they can get everything for free though, isn't there? Yeah, like you look back, I guess, in the history of, of journalism over these past 20 years, we've been through so many moments of disruption where everyone became a publisher. We can all take out our smartphones today, record video, take images, write text pieces. We're all publishers now. And over that time as well, uh, the modes of distribution change. You know, we've so many apps, websites, platforms, and our means of consumption change. You know, no longer do we necessarily turn on the radio at a particular point in time or TV or buy the traditional hard copy newspaper. We're consuming news and information all of the time in different moments. So there's been all of these moments of disruption, but our bet here in Kinzen is that we're also now in a moment of new disruption, a moment of correction, where people are fed up of the advertisements tracking them across the internet. They feel overwhelmed at this moment of faster content everywhere, that it's just people are worn out. And in the midst of that, we know also that the journalism industry, we see redundancies. We see them struggling with an advertising model that is broken, that is now really there's a monopoly amongst the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks when it comes to that online advertising. And so journalism, the publishing industry, the broadcasting industry, has to find new ways to revenue to build revenues with its audiences. So we think there's this moment between that hunger on the two sides for us to help bridge that gap. And that future is personalization. It is about a radically different news experience to what has gone before, where people can have a quality experience that is trustworthy, that is around their routines. So if you think about it, 
We need to get away from the moment of endless scroll. You know, when we've all been there, of going on an app or going on a platform and we're doing this with our thumbs and we're scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. I worry I will have arthritis in my thumb in years to come. And instead, what does it look like if we say time well spent, less is more? What if we can build you the perfect experience when you're on the dart for 20 minutes in the morning? That you can have an experience that is about your profession, your location, your interests, your hobbies, your topics. For me in the morning, I cycle. It's exactly 25 minutes. Can I have an audio experience perfectly curated for my day ahead? Who I am in the morning is very different to who I am in the evening. In the mornings, I care about the meetings I've coming up, what's happening in Dublin, the weather. In the evenings, I care about Netflix recommendations, new maybe gym tips and tricks and things like that. So we have to find ourselves in this moment where we start to find people where they are, the right content, in the right moment, in the right format. And I think if the journalism publishing industry can get their heads around this moment that we can correct, if we build people those radically new, different experiences, there is a way to build new revenue models against it. That will range, to your point, from free right up to subscription and membership. And in all of that, to that question of free, we need to ensure as an industry though that what is left behind isn't the clickbait, sensationalist, emotional driven content. Because if that's all that's left behind, that's where division thrives. We need to make sure that there is a quality journalism experience for everyone, those who can afford to pay and those who can't. And those that can afford to pay, that it's altruism, you're giving back, you're paying for others to have an informed experience about the world around them. Is there a certain elitism about that though? Well, I think when you look to the United States and places like that, how do we pay for our museums and some other cultural experiences? It's very often 10% in society that are giving it back for others. They're, they're paying it forward. And you see that now with The Guardian, you see that with the day correspondent model and others when it comes to membership. It's not that they're trying to bring all of the quality journalism in behind a paywall. Instead, it's how do you support the likes of The Guardian to keep this free. There are, of course, other, other models where you see more and more content disappearing about the paywall, but it is about getting that balance. And within getting that balance, we do need to make sure our journalism, our media industry is people-powered. It's about listening, going out into communities and finding where are there stories that are just not being represented by local media because, unfortunately, we have seen local newspapers across Europe and the United States closed down. There are just less people on the ground doing local accountable journalism. So how do we ensure that we're doing that people-centred uh, listening journalism that is about almost intentional listening, organised listening? And you're starting to see a lot of new technology companies like Tortoise in London doing exactly that. They are going out and doing what they're calling town halls, might not like that, that particular phrase, but that's what they're doing, going into communities and saying, what are we missing here to make sure it's represented in those more mainstream titles? So who is Kinzen's clients? Who are Kinzen's clients? Um, hopefully to be revealed in the coming weeks, um, our, our first uh, product is a personalised newsletter. So if you could imagine going into your favourite publisher and rather than having to figure out, oh my goodness, there's hundreds of articles here, what am I going to consume? Imagine going in the first time and saying, okay, my favourite publisher and rendering an experience that is about your topics, your location, your profession, your interests, your hobbies. And then saying to, to this personalised newsletter, I want to get it every morning at this time and every evening at this time. This is my commute and here's how long my commute is and build me an experience for that. 
Are you open to being challenged and discovering other sources and, and new ideas and being challenged about the world around you? Yes. Okay, we're going to pull in some other sources into this experience. So in the end, that every day you're going to have an experience that is personalised to you, that's relevant, that is quality, that is exactly built for you and your particular needs. But if we only built that personalised experience and that newsletter for you with your publisher, we would be in danger of just sending you down your filter bubble and confirming some of your unconscious biases. So we have a community of people who are building everything from channels on cryptocurrency to breastfeeding every day. And can we tap in those channels for your experience so that you are being challenged? And at the end of the week, if, we were, if you think about it as health and fitness for news, so you're coming in every week with this experience, starting with newsletters, but it'll eventually be websites, apps, and other experiences. You set those goals at the beginning of the week. You have an experience that's finely tuned for you, time boxed, especially for you. And then you get insights every week. So imagine every Sunday night, you're planning for the week of the head, you open up your Kinzen insights and you can see, okay, I asked for five newsletters. I opened three of them this week. I read 23 uh, articles. What were they about? Were they predominantly Irish? Were they predominantly about Monaghan GEA? Oh, and you're going down further her filter bubble. Do you want to change that? Do you want to be more challenged? Do you want to be more informed about other topics? Press this button and begin to personalise again. And so what lives behind all of this, if you can think about it as a citizen algorithm, for years really we've had these cookies tracking us across the internet, we've had recommendations of content and advertisements that we haven't understood because basically you have algorithms that are working hidden forces in the background that we don't control. So we try to reverse engineer that and say, well, what if everybody had access to their own citizen algorithm, that you control it? And so what we've been doing to build you that experience is basically looking across the World Wide Web, taking in thousands of sources that we trust that our community are validating. We apply natural language processing to it. So if you can imagine, we have a bag... I going to ask you, what the hell is yeah, that? Yeah, well, to boil it down very simply, if you're looking at articles, we're just trying to extract the topics uh, within them, the categories, the phrases. So as we do that all the time, we have now found 800,000 topics. Now before we did this work, what we realised with natural language processing of old, it was built to sell you something was built around advertising. And we said, well, we're going to use natural language processing to better understand you and your needs and preferences. So we have those 800,000 topics now. You've got a user experience, whether it's a website, an app, a newsletter. And then you're basically changing your preferences. More of this, less of that. This is my routine, 20 minutes. I want audio, I want text, whatever it is. That is your personal API, recommender API. And what we're doing is using machine learning engineering all the time to serve you up something that's of meaning to you while also then ensuring we're not pushing you down into that filter bubble. So this is an algorithm is really what's at the heart of it. That's a new buzzword for me. <laughs> now you've mentioned um, commute and morning quite a lot. Has your research shown you that this is kind of peak consumption time? Yeah, I think, I, I certainly know I, I have a routine in the mornings, I think most people do, and you know, you think to that routine, you get out of bed, you brush your teeth, you have your coffee, well, what does it look like in there if you have that moment of routine of, yeah, this is my 15 minute newsletter, this is my newsletter of newsletters, this is my experience, and in all of our research that is what has come back from people is that they've said to us, we feel overwhelmed, there's just so much faster content everywhere, help me find signal in the chaos. People have said, I'm 
fed up of these hidden algorithms. Give me something that I control, I can tweak, I can change. Um, and that's been important. That word control has constantly come back from people. And it's the same word that publishers use. Give us back control that we lost to the third party platforms. So that's been important in terms of understanding that control routine. And then that concept of what does it look like? We have an app, we have experiences for our diets, for our sleep, for meditation. Well, why not something that is for news that better helps us understand the world around us? Do you think it's an advantage being Irish when it comes to news, and particularly audio, because we're a nation that kind of talks all the time and we listen to the radio, we listen to Morning Ireland, and we've just, it's innate in us? Yeah, we're, we're definitely a nation of storytellers. And I think here we're sitting in Dublin on Merrion Square, surrounded by incredible startups, wonderful startups doing things around audio. And in the case of NOAA, we share an office here with NewsWhip that is trying to measure velocity and the virality of the social web. Storyful is down the road, the first social media news agency in the world. So this is truly a hub of innovation and creativity. And I think when it comes to journalism industry, there's so much excitement here when it comes from AI, uh, when it comes to that audio experience when you talk about, when you see the media innovation and the startups that we're in a moment here, that Ireland can really play a role in terms of, right, what does the future of journalism actually look like? And I hope that Kinzen and others are really going to kind of be the, the springboard for a lot of really great conversations, collaborations in the years to come. And yet it's based on the tradition of storytelling. I mean, just walked past uh, Yates, Russell's, you know, all of these houses where these people yeah. lived, you know, and there's that tradition there. Uh, can I just get back to, to basics, though, just talk about your own education and how did you get in? Did you say to yourself when you, you know, you're 17, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to be a tech, was it even a thing no. when you were 17? Uh, I would call myself something of an accidental entrepreneur. Um, I guess I would track it back to age 15, uh, secondary school, uh, Castle Blaney, Our Lady Secondary School. And back then, uh, you had to pick your leave insert subjects before you even did your junior cert. And I remember being really torn at that age between wanting to do journalism and wanting to do teaching. And I will never forget taking an A4 sheet of paper, drawing a line down the middle, head on one side, heart on the other. Head was teaching, heart was journalism. And I really thought it was a binary choice. God, if I get this decision wrong, I'm doomed. And I was fortunate that I had an uncle in journalism who basically said to me, look, if you have a curiosity about teaching, it is a great vocation, do it. It's a holistic degree. It will inform your journalism. You'll have life experience. You'll have knowledge to, to bring into journalism and you'll probably have an area to specialise in. And that's what I did. I went off, I did three years in St. Pat's out in Drumcondra. I had a permanent pensionable job, much to my mother's delight, in Drumcondra with uh, Corpus Christi Girls National School. But in the evenings after school, I would go and work for the Northside People newspaper. And after two years of doing both, I decided to take the plunge, uh, get beyond my comfort zone, do a master's in journalism, and haven't looked back since. Um, so you went up the road to DCU, did you? Yes, did. Had a, a fantastic year there. And uh, learned my trade uh, in parallel to working with the community journalism, Northside People newspaper. And ended up doing seven years in traditional journalism uh, with the Irish Independent, the Irish Times, the Irish Exa Examiner. Learned my craft, but obviously saw an industry in turmoil. Um, I was fortunate, you know, in that moment where you will remember the boom to Boston. I was a political correspondent for over five years in Leinster House, where you're just soaking in what felt like for years doom and gloom and having to then translate it out. Um, what were the big stories at the time there? Oh, Sorry my goodness. Um, so, well, of course, 
this, you know, this is Brian Cowan, this is back to the beginning days of even trying to use the or word of recession. And then IMF arriving into Ireland, obviously Bertie Hearn at the tribunal. So we think back to that frantic period. I know we're in the midst of Brexit and it feels chaotic, but those years uh, were particularly chaotic and it constantly felt like there wasn't even a pendulum swing from crazy to, to calm. It was just constantly crazy for years. And uh, as that cycle played out and looking at the state of journalism, I had an opportunity, there were 14 journalists picked from the north and the south to go out, sponsored by then Hillary Clinton's State Department, to do two weeks looking at the state of journalism. And I was so lucky I got to go to Boston, met then editor of the Boston Globe, Marty Barron, um, got to go to New York, into ProPublica, New York Times, and ended with Jay Rosen in New York City University and he is somebody I admire and respect and sitting in his class I realised oh my goodness we're doing this in the wrong order you know we're, we're, we're obsessed with the supply of journalism and not thinking enough about the demand for it people's need for journalism in their communities but also what do what stories do people have that we can turn like that content and turn it into a piece of journalism and on the flight back I emailed Mark Little I'd never met him before I'd seen him on the Late Late Show having left to start Storyful and basically said I don't quite understand what it is you're doing but I want to be a part of it I want to do something new and meaningful that's going to have impact for the world of journalism and so left uh, Irish Independent moved into Storyful and did five years there of building Storyful into the world's first social media news agency an extraordinary experience of basically working with eyewitnesses around the world an incredible team then of technologists and journalists to basically find signal in the noise, to bring content from the margins to the mainstream. Became obviously an extraordinary success, was acquired by News Corporation and Rupert Murdoch. But they were there like with the Arab Spring. And That's right, all. yeah, the very, very beginnings. And Storyful was obviously born out of a time of recession here in Ireland. It was a risk for Mark, was a risk obviously for others who joined him. But that sense of mission, that sense of there's something here from the outside in, there are these stories. If we can use technology to find them, we can be the ones to help turn that piece of content from the Arab Springs, from the Boston Bobbins, from tragedies in Paris but also the moments of joy like we all see those moments on Facebook of the cute kids doing something and animals there was moments of joy as well it was to try and find the match of that signal in the noise bring it in using our technology verify it good old-fashioned journalism who what where when how why get those permissions in place do those interviews and then turn around to the New York Times the ABC's the Guardians of the world and say we have now got for you a powerful piece of journalism, go and tell the world. So and they were delighted to get it. Of course, because very often in, in the case of tragedies and um, those moments of revolution world over, they couldn't put journalists in on the ground. So it was often what we then call citizen journalists, people who were in the right place at the with right the time. Phone, with camera. the mobile phone, yeah. uploading it very often to YouTube at those very earliest days, wanting to get a story out to the world. We have built the technology to find it very fast and obviously verified and we basically built the gold standard for verification and built this incredible relation, relationship of trust with the world's biggest newsrooms but also relationships of trust with people so we became really the honest brokers uh, between you look like you're very proud of that yeah I am yeah it was five years uh, God it was not without 
um, you know, it's difficult days, as is the nature of a startup. So you learn over the years to, you know, endure the lows and optimise the highs. But incredibly proud that an Irish startup that started out with 10 people, it's 200 people today, is powering so much good quality journalism world over and ultimately creating jobs here in Ireland still. Okay, so what did you do after Storyville? So Storyville was managing editor, five years managing a global team from Hong Kong, London, Dublin, uh, New York. And I got to that moment after five years of asking myself again, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And when I truly asked myself... It's a great that, question. Yeah, it's a Sheryl Sandberg one that I learned in my next place of work, which was Facebook. And I could never have imagined, to be honest, leaving Facebook it is, or in Storyful, it is in my DNA, they were my family, it was my everything for five years to build it into such an incredible organisation. And I always said, yeah, if I'm going to leave this, it has to be something beyond the comfort zone, it has to be something incredibly challenging. And uh, someone I trust sent me um, a reference uh, to a job advertisement that had gone up that Facebook was looking for a global head of journalism partnerships in New York. And I thought, right, well, there is the answer to the question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? You would go to New York, you would work for Facebook and lead up their, their global journalism partnerships. And for anyone who knows anything about Facebook, even back in, that was 2016, you will know at that point even, um, incredible stories. We were mining in Storyful, but there was obviously a mismatch between the revenues and the audience engagement. You've got a platform of two billion people. It has become critical for the news industry in terms of that engagement and distribution, but the revenues weren't aligned. So I went to Facebook feeling, okay, I'm going to go to Facebook. I'm going to build products, tools, services to help the world's journalists find those two billion people, engage with them, uh, and hopefully build revenue for it. And I'm also going to help journalists find the stories on the platform. And what followed was 20 months of roller coaster experience. Uh, learned so much about good culture, good communications, transparency, how to show care uh, for, your, for your team. Learned so much about ruthless prioritization, which was a totally new concept to me coming from. Better explain that to us. So, <laughs> I, it kind I, of sounds like what it is. But. Yeah, so like you come from Storyful into Facebook and then Storyful, like you're 20 different things to, to 20 different people in a day. And you go into Facebook where suddenly there's, you know, nearly 30,000 people and it's like, this is your lane have three wins this month and just really excel at that. Don't worry about the hundred other things that you want to do. So I arrived into Facebook wanting to solve journalism overnight and my manager used to often say to me, oh, and you stop trying to boil the ocean, ruthless prioritization. <laughs> so for 20 months, I it's learned- Basically ruthless. stay focused. Yeah, yeah and, and the, the way I was able to kind of underpin that, I, I helped launch the Facebook Journalism Project. It had three pillars. I had launched the News Integrity Initiative that also had kind of three pillars. So I found a way, how can I help with the training of journalists, new revenue models, building tools for journalists and Facebook, but then how do we work with the industry at large to then invest into trust initiatives, quality initiatives, diversity initiatives. Let's face it, they were badly in need of those. Yeah, and, and obviously when November 2016 arrived in Facebook, uh, there was you know, a post-mortem, there was a lot of introspection of what can we do better? Um, and it's fair to say my last 12 months in Facebook were largely concerned 
with the wicked problem that is what we would call fake news. I do not like using that term because it's a term that is now abused by some leaders world over and I prefer to talk about misinformation and disinformation. But I find myself in the middle of that perfect storm, that moment of crisis and trying to play my part and say, okay, if I'm here in Facebook, I've come here for the right reasons, I'm going to be part of the solutions coming out the back of November 2016. And do you think they did learn? Yeah, and, and you know, I think out of that came the Facebook Journalism Project, the News Integrity Initiative. I think what Facebook realised, and I tried to articulate this throughout my time in Facebook, which was, yeah, Facebook has a responsibility when it comes to misinformation, this wicked problem. And a wicked problem by its nature is contradictory, it's complex, there's no one solution to solve for it. And I think that's what I always realised in Facebook was, yeah, Facebook has a responsibility over here. It needs machine learning uh, to help spot those hoax and get rid of those fake accounts. Uh, it needs to work with um, fact checkers on the platform to dispute content, call it out as false and show people here is a factual article alternative to what you're saying. To work with news literacy organisations, educators to say right we're not going to be able to solve for false news uh, misinformation unfortunately I think is just part of the human condition we've seen it play out for decades on end. How do we train people, give them the school skills and tools that when they're on the Facebook to see okay let's you know do some critical thinking here is this real is this something i should share with my friends and family but then also thinking about okay are there ways in which we can collaborate with researchers world over with other publishers with other platforms and so through my time it was about looking at those suites of solutions and saying right can we work with google under the first draft initiative and first draft is now an organization with hundreds of newsrooms platforms uh, technology companies working together around issues like misinformation and I've long contended and I think you still see that with Facebook it is complex contradictory and they're still figuring out a multitude of solutions to solve for it. So it sounds like everybody's still doing a lot of figuring out. So yeah. you left uh, Facebook and did you come straight here then? Yeah myself and Mark had always said if we had the right idea and we could honestly answer the question of why this idea why now why us we do something again. Um, Mark, after Storyful, went to Twitter, I went to, to Facebook, and after 20 months in Facebook, uh, based out of New York, had started to talk to Mark about, okay, is there a, as Richard Kern once called it, a difficult second album, will we go again and do a startup? And the startup idea was Kinzen, that we felt there is this moment of correction coming, that people want to take back this control, people want that productive quality news experience. Can we play our part? Can we go back to Dublin and start again out of an attic on Marion Square? Where did you get the name, Kinza? So it's a combination, really, of, of two words. We wanted to build that, that sense of belonging to a community, uh, so that kind of kinship. Kin. Yeah. Mm. And then the, the Zen was more about you as a citizen, uh, trying to be informed about the world, to better understand the world. So it was really putting the kin and the Zen together to, to, to give us Kinzen. Um, and we feel it's it's pretty powerful. We've uh, used uh, you know starlings, the mermings, where you kind of see them in beautiful doing sky dances, and they just know beautifully how to do their own movements and yet come back together. And we often think it's a little bit like that. Kinzen, you are your own individual there in terms of having your own experience, but you can tap into this wider community and feel a sense of kinship through the channels, the experiences of others to make sure you're not going down through those filter bubbles. So you obviously must be pretty optimistic. I mean, I, I get worried. I teach a couple of days a week, and uh, 
I went into a class maybe about two years ago with a stack of newspapers, yeah. Daily Mail, The Sun, The Irish Independent, The Irish mm-hmm. Times. And as I was walking in the room, I hadn't opened my mouth, one of the students said to me, hey, what do you think we are, uh, dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they automatically yeah. assume newspapers and journalism is kind of old hat. Mm. How do we bring that kind of new generation uh, around to the idea that, you know, long form journalism or even, or even short form, but mm. authentic journalism mm-hmm is worth it. Yeah, and I, I feel probably that generation get a bad rap because we've done a lot of analysis and research the last 18 months and the millennial generation, the 18 to 25 year olds, are the ones that potentially can help save journalism. Why? Because they've become sensitised to paying for Netflix and paying for Spotify. They're paying for experiences that give them lots of sources and um, experiences in one place that organises their time, that's efficient with their time, and is ultimately quality, it's about service. And so that generation, when you look to Reuters research, there are green shoots, and where the green shoots and the increases in paying for news, making donations, uh, joining memberships, it is that millennial generation that is where the greatest jump has been in recent years. So that gives me heart, that gives me faith. I think we as an industry have done a terrible job over the years, even explaining what news is. So you're right, people look at the hard copies and go, well, I can have a digital experience, and we probably don't enough explain what it takes to do that journalism, that journalism in the hard copy uh, experience is the same journalism that's often distributed onto Twitter and onto Facebook, trying to engage you and build that relationship. And I think as an industry, we haven't done a very good job at explaining the why, why journalism matters, why you need to pay it, why we're in this state of turmoil, why is it that we're trying to do memberships and subscriptions and sometimes tote bags and things that might feel a little bit frivolous, but are ultimately important in terms of building that loyalty with you. So we need to get better at that, one. And two, with that generation, we need to stop making assumptions that is about producing faster content everywhere. What does it look like instead? Let's do less content. Look at The Guardian last week. They came out and said, we're doing a third less content. Our engagement has actually gone up. Like there's something in that where we're actually looking at the data, uh, we're looking at people's needs and that ultimately means building news experiences from the outside in, not always obsessing about faster content everywhere, let's push it out and see what sticks. What does it look like when we actually go to people and say, what do you need to better understand the world around you? What does your commute and morning habits look like? And you build individual experiences for people. That's where obviously Kinzen comes in between people's hunger for that organisation in the chaos and publishers need to regain control of that relationship, we can help broker that. But it means, as I say, radically different experiences, listening to people's needs and intentions because they're clearly saying enough of what's gone before, we're fed up, international cookies, we're fed up of the advertisements, too much content. We will pay for this, but it has to look and feel different. Curated, personalised, quality, trustworthy. Something that you can trust is so important, yeah, isn't it, exactly. to all ages. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you a couple of things about um, being a woman in the whole tech industry, because uh, I remember being at one of the, the original um, web summits and going into a room, and there was a, an Indian woman talking, she'd worked for Oracle, and she was talking about tech this and Internet of Things and all the young men in the audience were typing away on the computers, totally engaged in what she was saying. And then he asked her something about being a woman and then they all just started looking at their mm. phones and just totally switched off. You know, yeah. Do we need more women in tech? Do we need more women in startups like this kind of startup? And is it difficult? Yeah, of course. Um, And you see it in the media industry as well. It's not just the tech industry where it too often feels very white 
middle class and male. We definitely have a diversity problem in our media industry and in our, our, our tech industry. I think it ultimately, it, it's simplistic to say it and obvious, but it is top down. And it is that concept of men understanding what it means to be an ally, to be a feminist in this in this moment. And those men are, are the ones who talk up for women, speak for women when women too often aren't in the room. Uh, I've been very lucky over the years that I've had men that will say, well, Anya's on that, Anya's got that, when I haven't been in that, that boardroom. Uh, so it ultimately starts top down in terms of how we set about building our culture and our policies, but then making sure from the ground up we clearly need more programmes when it comes to the media industry that says, right, how do we get kids from disadvantaged areas, from new communities, from underrepresented areas? How do we create programmes, uh, schools, where they are coming in? And that may mean creating quota systems that we currently don't have, and the same for, for the tech industry. And I'm a big believer across society in the need for those quota uh, needs and I know a lot of women will argue with me on that I will contend until we break that that glass ceiling we need to do everything to pull up other women behind us and when we hit that glass ceiling then fine we can remove some of those quotas so I do think yes there's culture there's best practices there's policies from top down to creating those communities from the ground up but I think then we just need that forcing function around quotas and other methodologies that will actually ensure that you've got women in positions of power around the boardroom. You've won a Tatler Award for uh, being a leading light. Uh, what did that mean to you? <laughs> um, well, very unexpected and very much appreciated from, from Nora Casey and the team there. Um, you know, I, I like to think that I've, I've done my part and continue to play my part in, in journalism, be it uh, from traditional journalism into startup, into platform and back again to startup, that trying to kind of think about journalism, because as you can probably tell, I fundamentally believe it is critical to our functioning societies and helping create informed communities that people can make decisions, whether it's at the ballot box or just how they go about their business every day. And journalism is in that moment of chaos, and I hope I can play my part, and I, I think it was in recognition of that. And I also just wanted them make sure day to day and doing something to give back, whether that's through ONA Ireland that I founded, which is a mechanism for people to get training and do some meetings and collaborate, or through initiatives with um, going for growth that is sponsored uh, with Enterprise Ireland and KPMG to continue to seek those opportunities to give back, to mentor women, to advise. Uh, so I hope I can do more of that. Uh, and all the while, yeah, doing the ruthless prioritisation and uh, from an attic here in Marion Square, continue to try to take over the world. <laughs> you look like you get excited every morning at the thoughts of coming to work. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's such a good point because I realised through many years of learning that I am someone who has to reconnect with my mission every day. And it took doing the Myers-Briggs personality test, which I recommend for, for your listeners, because that helped me better understand me, you know, back to know thyself. And when I came to learn, I had the opportunity uh, when I was in New York to go to Columbia University for a year. And I came to understand that I am your IF, uh, INFJ. That means I'm an idealist, I'm the mediator, I'm the harmonizer, clarifier. Um, that every day I have to get up and do something that is meaningful, that, that gives you a sense of value. That means there's 15 people who aren't like me, and I'm very, very conscious of that as well. But that has been critical, know thyself, and knowing that, and knowing, look, I need to be happy in work and at work, and yes, while uh, salary and perks and pension would be nice, and I could have stayed in Facebook for that, 
I came back to Dublin to do this, to start again with another startup because of that sense of mission. And that means every day though, just always thinking about your plan Bs and that is not a good point of emphasis from Facebook, which is, you know, go kick the shit out of plan B as well, even while you're trying to live life in your plan A. Before we wrap up, what would your top three or even five tips for leadership for women, but for men as well, but mostly for women? Okay. Um, so one, I guess, is this concept of lava. Uh, many years ago when I was uh, in Storyful, just acquired by News Corporation, they very kindly gave me a coach in New York and who taught me this concept. You know, when you're trying to tackle through complex negotiations, have difficult conversations, to listen, acknowledge, validate, ask. And I think our tendency sometimes as leaders is just to wade in and try and fix it and say, I've got that, I'm on the case. And instead, what does it look like when you sit back and go, I hear you, that is pretty crap. And yeah, I can see how that happened. And well, what would you do? And just teasing that out. So just the art of asking good questions. So that's one. Two is, yeah, back to know thyself. You know, do your personality test, do your Myers-Briggs not only just to know yourself, but to understand there are 15 different types of people. And that has been critical for me as a manager, as a leader, to realize there are introverts, there are extroverts, there are people who feel, there are people who judge. There are those of us who are busy beavers, we just love process. There are those who are the owls, they want data, they want the science in order to make decisions. There are those who are improvisers, they're eagles, they love coming in with the bat shit crazy ideas and causing chaos but you need good chaos and then there's the dolphins like me that are the harmonizers or clarifiers clarifiers but when you realize there are 16 different types of people you realize you have to manage them in different ways so that's two three would be in the words of jeff bezos which is you know to be stubborn always on your vision but flexible about your tactics and that, you know, particularly in a startup where you do have to change, and I hate to use the word pivot, but you're constantly in a state of learning. And you just all the time have to come back to starting at the end and working backwards. What is it that we're here to do? Even if it takes us 10 years, uh, and we commit to that every day. And there's a little bit of a commitment to suffering in all of that, particularly when it comes to startups. Um, four, I would say, I've read this brilliant book. Uh, it's called The Messy Middle. Highly recommended for folks who, maybe their organization is up and running a year, two years or longer. And we always tend to think about success as this, you know, beautiful hockey stick of growth. And nobody ever really talks about the fact that there's a little bit more jig jaggedy along the way of moments of euphoria, moments of doom and gloom. And that book is all about how to endure the lows and optimize the ops. And it really tries to teach you resilience. And I would say as a, a stretch on from that is five, which is you as a leader um, have to be the person that gives energy, not takes energy. And there is a great moment in that messy middle book that, that I mentioned, which is this analogy of, you know, at the beginning, everybody set off on the bus. You could kind of see the landscape around you. You knew what the start line looked like and you were all energized about, right, that's the destination we're going to. But as you go on your venture, the windows are blocked out and you as the leader have to tell people what, what it looks like outside. And that means every day, you know, talking to people one-to-one, -one, coaching them along, explaining the tricky terrain, how we're going to navigate a little bit differently, how we might have to try something different over here and experiment. And that's kind of been the window. You are the team's window as a leader. You are navigating them to that end point. You have to be the person every day who gives energy, doesn't take it away. What is your go-to song? Say you have a rough day. <laughs> 
or say you're doing your training and you just don't have the energy so for it. My, my, my Spotify recommender engine is definitely struggling with me over the, at the moment because uh, in the past, you know, I've, I'll even start st- song that was the Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. In low points and storyful, I would have gone to... Um, the song called Carry On by the Fulla Band in New York. Uh, having had a baby 14 months ago that is now, you know, Muppets, Baby Shark and so much else, I feel like <laughs> my go-to songs are changing. But if I had one right now, it's probably going to sound kind of corny, but when I was pregnant, The Greatest Showman came out and there's that incredibly powerful song, that This Is Me. And I sang it all the time to the bump and I sing it still to my daughter, which is about being diverse and being proud of who you are day to day, true to yourself, um, learning as you go in all of your bruises and bandages and finding a way forth with your head held high and being proud of who you are and where you've come from. And I guess that is important for me in this moment where, yes, I'm an accidental entrepreneur trying to do good things, but I'm also now a new mother trying to kind of navigate my way in the world and do things that ultimately my daughter will be proud of. And so this is me is kind of a little mantra between the two of us that I hope I can instill in her in the years to come. Kind of changes your perspective, doesn't it? It sure does. It's like putting a different lens on life. And I'm a big believer that if you want something done, ask a busy woman, uh, back to that ruthless prioritisation. I didn't know the sixth gear arrived until uh, 14 months ago when Anna arrived and uh, every day, you know, and it takes incredible partnership with my husband. Um, every day you're just programming your life and you're just, you're doing more with less time and sometimes a little bit sleep deprived. Um, but you appreciate it all the more and I appreciate even more than the importance of doing something like Kinza and me being happy, mission orientated because the better I am at this the better I'm going to be as a wife and mother as well. Another quote from Charles Sandberg, married the right man isn't it? (laughs) Yeah that's right. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, you've been a terrific guest. Thank Thank you. That's all from the Women in Leadership podcast for this week. My thanks to our guest, Anya Kerr, Chief Operations Officer of Kinzen, for her insights on the new world of journalism and for her leadership advice and lava. Listen, acknowledge, validate and ask. I hear you, Anya. If you want to comment on what you've heard, do email us on info at womeninleadership.ie. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and iTunes podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We also love to hear from you and we post regularly on LinkedIn. The website has a huge back catalogue of interviews with amazing women. Please check them out. They're free. For sponsorship opportunities too, we welcome any contact from you. Our email address is on the website and here it is, info at womeninleadership.ie. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti and all on the Women in Leadership podcast team, goodbye and take care.